And as we pray, I'll just repeat what I mentioned in the stained glass window talk today. The New Testament passage is one that preachers run from. So I don't know why we didn't do it in the last two weeks when I was gone, but let's pray. Gracious God, we have come to sit under your word. So we pray that you would take our time together and transform it. Work past our defenses. Work with and despite the sermon that I have prepared. Work deep in all of our hearts so that we would individually and collectively connect with you once again, decide to be your disciples, commit to it, and be willing to take and to live your word into the world. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Old Testament lesson comes from the prophet Amos. I would just say that Amos is bringing this word to the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century when their stock market was high, their interest wage rates were low, everyone had a job, and life was good. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the ephah small, the shekel great, and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling sweepings of wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget these deeds. The New Testament reading is a teaching, a parable, and a series of sayings by Jesus. Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him. And he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. 
he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus added, for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are all of the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal home. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. May the Lord bless this reading of his holy word. This is probably a Sunday, an unusual Sunday, when we prefer the Amos passage to the Jesus passage. Amos is concerned about rich merchants nickel and diming the poor, objectifying them to make a profit, to increase the bottom line. We get that. We despise that. We agree with that. We hope we're not doing it. I'll never forget the time when Pamela was so excited that she was able to get Teague and Ethan when they were small shoes at a wonderful price. And her husband said to her, Wonderful. Those were sewn by children in a sweat factory in Asia. And she just started to cry because she knew it was probably right. And then she had some choice words for me. You know, the, the market, the secular market, to use that secular word, I mean, this is good business sense, right? To make the ephah small and the shekel great. 
to practice deceit with false balances or misleading statistics? To lower the price of labor, or in Amos' words, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And then what I always think of when I worked in the sausage factory, you know, Amos says selling the sweepings of the wheat, not wasting anything, but getting a good dollar out of even scrap. That's why after the hot dogs are made and after the sausages are made, you make head cheese, which is basically everything that's left. And you sell it to the poor. And they buy it up. It's just good business, isn't it? Alison Bowden says throughout his book, Amos' focus is the trampling and oppression of the poor and the needy. Humans are bought and sold and treated like trash. His great appeal to any who hear or read his words at any time is to integrate our lives, to not have that secular, sacred divide. It's never just business for Christians. There never is a marketplace that is separate from the will of God. If we lived out the faith we claim to profess, we could never treat people this way, she says. We'd respect their humanity. We'd commit ourselves to honesty and transparency in all of our dealings. We couldn't cheat a soul. Amos implores us for our own sake and for others not to compartmentalize religion in our lives to shudder it off certain days of the week and places we go, but to let our faith inform all that we do, how we treat every person we meet. We all have need in order to live in a just and faithful society. We only lack the determination to do it. Our greed perhaps gets in the way, she says. I, I think for us, sometimes, you know, Presbyterians hold this all together Lutherans, Lutherans, right, sometimes move over into this idea of two kingdoms, of sacred and secular. But not Presbyterians. We would never do that. We would never, ever do that. So that's Amos. There's a lot for us to think just on Amos and the integration of our lives. One of the ways I think about this is, at what point would I, Scott, cheat someone? Would I cheat Jesus? No. Would I cheat Pam? No. Would I cheat my children? No. Would I cheat my friends? No. But if I don't know you, and you really want to pay me twice what that bike part's worth, isn't that just good business? And then all of a sudden, the integration of my life begins to fade away. Okay, meanwhile, Jesus approvingly tells the story of a steward, an accountant, a manager who fleeces his boss. 
passing on unearned profits to those who borrowed from the man. What is Jesus doing here? What on earth is going on? The parable proceeds in several steps. First, the rich man has a manager. Second, there's a problem. The manager is accused of mismanagement and must account for his mismanagement or his accounting. Three, the manager considers his options, one of which is not, let me show you the books because everything's really okay. The manager establishes a strategy, and then after enacting that strategy, the rich man looks at the manager and says, impressive. And then Jesus seems to encourage his disciples to live the same way. Now, this parable scares me. Because I know right now there are places even nearby here where you can go and talk to, I'm going to put in quotes, Christian business people who would read this passage as if Jesus was telling them to go ahead and make a buck as quickly as they possibly could. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Let's go back to the text. What will I do now, says the manager, now that my master is taking my position away from me? He's concerned about himself, isn't he? He's not concerned in any way for making good with the rich man. In, in many ways, he's acting like a victim. And then somehow, in the story that Jesus tells, he settles on a, a goal, maybe even a value. Maybe for the first time in his life, he counts, he trusts a value of eternal significance. And that is the value of hospitality and relationship. Now, as a dishonest manager, he doesn't seem to know how to do this the long way, and he understands how to cut corners. And so he tries to do this by courting favor with those people who owe the rich man money. And the rich man who seems not to care about those people indebted to him, nor the manager, but, and this should be very familiar from a stockholder standpoint, simply the bottom line, looks at the manager and admires his what? Chutzpah? Scheming? I mean, after all, we don't know when he threatened to fire the manager, if he really was going to fire the manager. Maybe he was just trying to motivate the manager to bring in funds. But somehow, the manager who was 
in fear of being destitute, seems to have figured out a way to survive, but a way to survive that is consistent with God's eternal goal. And then Jesus says something troubling. For the children of this age are more shrewd. In other words, the secular children, to use that divide, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Church people. Jim Edwards, in his commentary on Luke, says this, the master praises the steward, the scoundrel though he is, for his ingenuity in figuring out a way of providing for his future using his soon-to-be-lost financial power. Indeed, he is a son of this world, but he's more prudent in planning for the only future he's concerned about than the typical religious person is in planning for his or her eternal future with God. Is that sort of the shock of the parable? Christine Pohl, in an essay titled Profit and Loss, contends that Jesus does not commend the manager's practices, but rather his insight into the connection between resources and relationships. When we consider our wealth and economic practices, even the means we employ to accomplish such good ends as peripheral to the kingdom, as secular and not sacred, we are ignoring Jesus' warnings that it is impossible to serve God and mammon. Well, well, maybe. But then, did you notice that Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. Here's the easy way out. Luke got it wrong. Isn't there a part of you that sort of thinks, yeah, that must be it. So that when it's gone, they may welcome you into your eternal homes. If you would permit me a little Greek work here. And instead of just saying this myself, I will quote Joseph Fitzmaier, who is the guy on Luke. In Greek, the phrase does not clearly mean ill-gotten gain. That's probably what you thought of when I said dishonest wealth. That's certainly what I thought of, and I think it's a very poor translation. Or wealth wrongly acquired. Because of the Greek phrase, it could mean that. It could. But it seems to also mean, which it could in Greek as well, wealth that leads to dishonesty. In other words, when Jesus talks about dishonest wealth now, he's pointing out to the fact, or he's pointing out the fact in his parable that both the rich man and the manager for most of their lives 
used wealth and viewed wealth in such a way that was purely secular and not sacred for the bottom line and not for eternal relationship. Does that make sense? And so now what Jesus is saying is not make relationships apart from wealth. Don't touch money. Ooh, dirty. Is not saying that. Is saying when you deal with wealth and money, one is it can lead to a lot of dishonesty. Let's just realize that what we're dealing with has that character to it. But use it for what is eternal, for what is true, for your future. And Jesus does this in such a way as to scare the poodle out of us, to put us in the position. If you've never been in this position in life, I feel sorry for you because this is an important position to be in where you're fired. And all of a sudden, you don't know how you're going to move forward. And then you start figuring out who you really are and what you really care about. Jesus puts us in that position because as he's talking to his disciples, do you think they identify with the rich man? No. Do you think they identify with the manager? Probably. Because I have a feeling in their minds, right, they still don't think Jesus is going to die on a cross, that they're going to be managers of Jesus. They're, they're, they sort of like this guy. And what they hear is they could be fired if they mess up. Have the disciples been messing up? Like all the time? And when you're fired, all of a sudden, you think, what am I going to do? Where am I going to live? How am I going to eat? It begins to bring you down to the integration of the secular and the sacred. And I think that's why Jesus is able to say, whoever is faithful in very little will be faithful in much. How we na navigate this relationship with money that tends towards dishonesty, that tends towards exploitation. Another way of saying that is that it takes a lot of smarts to figure out how to use money for relationship. That's the other side of the coin, so to speak. And whoever is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. We can't serve both. That's what Jesus said. We can't have a part of our life where the bottom line is financial and another part of our life where the bottom line is doing what God wants. We can't. We have to bring this part of our life over this part. So I have these questions. 
How do we respond to faithfully, how do we respond faithfully to just and unjust disruptions? I mean, after all, in the story, the rich man heard that the manager was squandering his property, but we don't know that for sure. I mean, it's true that the manager doesn't defend himself, but does everyone defend themselves when the boss brings you into the office and says you're fired? That's one of the questions I have. How do we respond? Is there a way to do that without the secular sacred split? How do we use all of our talents and power for the sake of eternal relationships? How do we use all that occurs not only in our hearts, but also on our CVs for the sake of what God is about? What does it mean to participate in a broken world that is always bent towards serving mammon and wealth? In other words, what does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? How does the church handle money and wealth, money and wealth that always has the potential to derail our mission? Always. If my reading of this parable is, is plausible, then what Jesus is saying is every single time we put a church budget together, we need to ask ourselves, have we made the secular sacred split? Or is this all integrated? Because our tendency is going to be, well, to follow the energy behind money that Jesus says moves towards dishonesty. And finally, is there praise to be given to those who have wasted money? I mean, there's a sense in which the solution of the manager wasted the rich man's money. Do you remember the woman who anoints Jesus with the costly anointment? And Judas, no less than Judas said, oh my gosh, what a waste. All of this money could have been given to the poor. And Jesus' response was, lay off her. And essentially said, why not waste? Oh my gosh. We're part of a Presbyterian congregation. Waste money? Is there praise to be given to those who have wasted money but reveal in their actions a better reflection of the kingdom of God? I'll close with this. William H. Willimon, the great preacher, said this. One way you can tell the difference between a true and living God and a dead and fake God is that the false God will never tell you anything that will make you angry and uncomfortable. If I've done my job today, you're a little bit angry and you're very uncomfortable. Remember, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't run from this passage. We all together are trying to be apprentices to Jesus. And I know at least in my work in this passage over the last few weeks, those questions that I've asked of us, I've been asking of me. And I will continue to ask of me. And to try to figure out how to serve God with everything I've been given. Amen.